You're listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. This is Eugene Hernandez, Deputy Director here at Film at Lincoln Center. This week, we're about to listen to a conversation between Kent Jones and filmmaker Todd Haynes, along with actor-producer Mark Ruffalo. They were here recently for a members-only screening of the new film, Dark Waters. The film is based on a true story. It's uh, based on a 2016 article in New York Times Magazine by Nathaniel Rich. The article was entitled, The Lawyer Who Became DuPont's Worst Nightmare. But before we get to that, we're going to talk about a retrospective that's coming up here at Film at Lincoln Center. And to tell us more about it is my colleague, Maddie Whittle. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So we have this uh, retrospective coming up this week um, by a noted French filmmaker, although a filmmaker that maybe, um, while certainly noted in uh, circles here at Film at Lincoln Center, maybe less known to audiences. So tell us who that is and where she, what, what she's about. Yes, so uh, Patricia Mazoui is uh, a French filmmaker who is known on the international festival circuit. She uh, is less known in the US and her films are pretty rarely screened um, and are largely undistributed in the US. Uh, and so we're very lucky to be uh, joined by her this weekend for a retrospective that includes uh, five of her films, um, including four feature films and one uh, made-for-TV film that um, was part of a series, a sort of an anthology series that a number of really uh, great and renowned French directors were part of. Um, and uh, we're, we're really excited to have her here to talk about her films, her career. She got her start working with Agnes Varda as an editor mm -hmm. and uh, moved into directing, and she's... Uh, she's had a long career, uh, and her re film releases have been relatively spread out, mm -hmm. so um, not uh, super frequent, um, but uh, a lot of really interesting movies. So so Patricia is a filmmaker that um, you mentioned that she's had a success on the festival circuit, mm -hmm. but... Um, I guess by implication, that means maybe her films haven't or have her films been released in New York or they haven't been um, seen as widely in New York, I guess what you're saying. Yeah, many of them haven't had any kind of release in New York, um, maybe have shown in a festival here and there. Several of them showed in uh, our Rendezvous with French Cinema Festival, mm -hmm. including um, her most recent film, Paul Sanchez is Back, which we screened this past uh, winter in our Rendezvous with French Cinema, um, which is sort of a dryly humorous police procedural that's kind of um, goes in some unexpected directions mm -hmm. um, and and sort of plays some some interesting mind games. It's a lot of fun and um, it was it was really exciting to have it as part of our program this year uh, in particular because we were probably introducing a lot of our audiences to Patricia's work through this film. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, hopefully this retrospective will continue to do that. She's, her films have screened in Cannes and in other festivals around the world, and certainly she's well-known in France, but um, just, she just hasn't, hasn't really uh, gained footing in the U.S. Mm -hmm. yet, and we hope to change that. Um, maybe, um, Maddie, just a little bit uh, to ask for a little bit more context and maybe a little more background. 
what is it that for you as an audience member, what is it for you that, that is striking about her work? Maybe what might audiences find um, notable or is there is there um, a certain uh, approach or an imprint or a style or is there something that kind of unifies uh, the films that you've seen uh, that's unique to her kind of personality or that is, is expressing that she's expressing in a certain way? Yeah, yeah. Her films are eclectic in the sense that... Um, there they encompass um period dramas and sort of family chamber dramas that are sort of brooding and moody um but all of them really uh comment on social dynamics um both on intimate scales and on much larger scales and across sort of the spectrums of power and gender um specifically with an eye to french social dynamics but um the 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 sort of humanism and realism of her particular sensibility as a storyteller, I think is, is uh, very particular to her. She's got sort of a, there's a warmth to her films, but also sort of a, this subtle uncanniness that um, means that you never quite know where you stand with her film until mm. perhaps long after you've seen it. Mm. Um, and uh, I think that these films are going to really, spur some interesting conversations um, when she's here and beyond. So I think if I understand it correctly, she's going to be presenting uh, or uh, appearing in person with each of her films at this retrospective, um, maybe um, for audiences that are making plans to uh, check out some of this weekend's offerings. Maybe maybe you can um, offer a little bit more context on, on something that um, might not immediately leap off the page um, necessarily. But uh, maybe maybe would be worth uh, worth an worth it worth a look. Sure, yeah. So she's um, she'll be doing a Q and A for each of her films. Each of her films, uh, each of her features are screening twice. Okay. And she'll be doing Q and As for all of them um, on Friday and Saturday of this weekend. Um, I would I would urge people to check out her first feature, Po de Vache, which uh -huh. is uh, which roughly translates to thick skinned or cowhide. Um, it's that's the um, it was very much admired by Jacques Rivette. Uh, it stars Sandrine Bonaire as uh, the wife of a farmer whose brother was imprisoned 10 years ago for a crime that the two brothers may have been complicit in together. Uh, and the one brother went to prison and now he's back and he's integrating himself into the family of the brother who didn't go to prison. And it's sort of this... Um, really uh it, it it's not quite a psychological thriller but it's it there's something very dark about it um that gets into um these sort of gnarly family dynamics and uh, i would urge people to check it out if they want a good introduction to who patricia muzui is mm -hmm. very good well um we encourage our listeners to um, check out this series that's coming up here at Film at Lincoln Center. You can get more information on the entire the entire program at filmlink.org. And uh, Maddie, thank you for coming by to tell us a little bit about Patricia and her work. Thanks for having me. And now let's take a listen to our recent conversation uh, with Kent Jones talking to Todd Haynes, filmmaker Todd Haynes, and actor-producer Mark Ruffalo about their new film, Dark Waters. Let's go to that now. Um, should I drink the water? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. No. Quick test. We were just talking about what a massive job it must have been to shape this material into a movie. Um, that that seems like a good place to start the conversation. Can you talk about that? I mean, how how many years in gestation 
Was it Fast. For this None. None. <laughs> oh, I mean, in movie terms? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. I mean, the script, though, development. Um, it was a, uh, about a year um, mm -hmm. with the first draft uh, with Matthew Carnahan, and then Todd came on and, and brought Mario uh, Correa in, and that was another year. I mean, the, uh, the original New York Times article landed in 2016. Right. The first draft that you sent me was 2017. Then 2018, we brought Mario in. Yeah. And we were in pre-production by the fall of that year. Yeah. And um, I mean, I have to say that the world that you build for this movie is beautiful. The, 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 the um, visual texture of the film really tells the story so beautiful. Can you talk about working with your DP, Ed Lachman, to a yeah. production designer? Yeah. I mean, the amazing thing was that we did it all there, and we did it all in the real... Did you shoot in West Virginia and Ohio? We shot second unit in West Virginia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we picked places in Ohio State, which was our, which was our grounding rebate yeah, state, yeah, yeah. to play West Virginia. Yeah. But we shot at the actual staffed law, law offices in yeah. downtown Cincinnati, yeah. and they provided a kind of climate and a sort of sense of shadow and light and corridors and and uh, those sort of uh, striped frosted glass window partitions <laughs> and floating glass ceilings and the triangular yeah. conference rooms and all these things that Hannah Beachler, who designed the film mm -hmm. for, for us, who I hadn't worked with before, mm -hmm. and Ed Lockman, who I've, who this is my eighth major, eighth major yeah. project with Ed, we would have picked this location hands down, were mm -hmm. not even the actual Taft Law offices. Yeah. Um, but so we were in the places, we were surrounded by the people. Mm -hmm. And I think for all of us, from an aesthetic standpoint, we kind of wanted to have a kind of sense of that cool, observant camera and rhythm that would be true across the board, that mm -hmm. would sort of link these different locations and places and people right. that rob anchors, but that the interconnection between them all, crossing class boundaries and state boundaries and pedigree and privilege, uh, was so essential to how this story unfolded and how the fight against DuPont ultimately was launched. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Mark, as an actor, I would imagine that you spent a lot of time just soaking up the atmosphere talking to the people driving those roads going to visit those places um, yeah um, I, I actually spent a lot of time with Rob yeah um, and we made a we made a pilgrimage out to uh, Parkersburg sure. yeah, it's about three and a half hours there mm -hmm. um, from um, from Cincinnati and I just regaled the guy with questions the whole way. Mm -hmm. And he's not, uh, he's a pretty guarded person. Mm -hmm. um, he moved around every year of his life. He, he, he's just very modest and not incredibly forthcoming and, and not very mm -hmm. emotional either. So uh, I probably spent, probably when it was all said and done, weeks with him. Yeah, just soaking up as as much as I could and, yeah. and getting as much background as I possibly could, and and actually stealing as much as I could from uh, him physically as well. Yeah, and also that emotional reticence too. That that yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, you're telling a 
a story about a hero who's not really anything that we would imagine our heroes to be. And um, as an actor, you want to go for those big, juicy moments like that monologue. You want to like blast him or the deposition with the uh, holiday uh, uh, who's the CEO of DuPont, you know, but that was that wasn't what he was doing. And so Todd and I made a, a decision early on that we would we weren't going to try and dramatize anything or or work in the parlance of what you expect a hero to be, but just be as honest as possible to, to Rob in the story. And it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult feat that you guys pulled off because you're telling a story where really the villain is, it's DuPont, but the real villain is the money that they can spend, <laughs> that, they have, that they have access to. And he knows that they're going to grind down. And, uh, yeah. trying to A system. Yeah. It's a whole system that, that you're fighting against. And I, you know, that's that's the bigger idea of the, of the of the film. I'm hoping is that, you know, this is the same thing with the opioids. It's the same thing with fracking. It's the same thing with with uh, lead in our water. It, it's it's over Monsanto. Our food being poisoned. This is the same system. It's the same fight. It's the same people fighting them. You know, these these frontline communities, poor people. Who, who sound the alarm and then hope that the rest of us are going to be there to help. But it's the same, it's the same, it's the same issue again and again and again. It's a, it's a government that's captured by a corporate interests and our health is being sold out. And it's, it's not just PFOA, uh, it's, it's, it's a hundred other things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the challenge as you're as you were saying is, Ken, is that this is the challenge of the story is that it's all being discovered, third, you know, sort of third, second and third hand right. by Rob. You know, Wilbur is a first-hand witness, but his, and his instincts are absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. And, but then the real process of discovery, the sort of investigative story mm -hmm. is a third-hand story that's unearthing uh, a dark and corrupt history that lasts, that goes on for, that has been going on for, you know, four decades. Mm. And, and how, and, and given the temperament of this character mm -hmm. who is suspicious and not prone to suspect the worst in corporate culture. Mm -hmm. He's in fact prone to precisely the opposite. He's, right. he's paid to find resolution between regulation and industry. Yeah. And that's how we, uh, set him up, mm -hmm. and so and and really all the, the the kind of whistleblower films that I love and that I think this falls into the same category uh, of as are all similar in this way, mm -hmm. where almost the bigger the story becomes, the smaller the world of the whistleblower gets, yeah. and the more fraught and the more perilous, and they are isolated. You know, at first you see him crossing all of these boundaries of class and meeting these people and making connections. And then you see everybody feeling the, the, the impact yeah. of challenging systems of power mm -hmm. and, and the intimidation and the paranoia that follows. Mm -hmm. and, and in a way, sort of pulling apart from each other in a, in a kind of despair and a sense of foreboding, you know? Even though you, he keeps getting angrier mm -hmm. and that fuels the next stage of the 
legal fight. Um, and so you watch this progression, but it, because it's a real true story, it has the imperfections and the circuitous two steps forward, one step back yeah. of real life. Yeah. And so uh, it doesn't have the slam dunk at the end. Right. He doesn't drive away in an SUV at the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. The slam dunks don't happen generally. Yeah. Right. Not I, in real life. No, they don't. Or they're not shown. They're not featured, at least in, in our in the way we tried to show the, tell the story. Yeah. Um, I also just I, once again to return to um, the way that the film is visual. As the film goes along, you become more and more aware with every new office restaurant setting, you know, of you start to become sure. aware of surfaces, the churches, the, the, I mean, there are two different churches that you see in the film and you become aware of the, the surfaces wondering, you know, whether these chemicals of, you know, they're just kind of like part of everything, the smooth yeah. surfaces, the light. Yeah. 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 We wanted to, Ed and I really wanted to feel like you were yeah. seeing them, yeah. that they were in the textures, they were in the colors. Yeah. There's a cool palette that we, that we play out through the whole, the whole film that yeah. uh, um, absolutely, of course, there's still radical contrast between these places and these people. But, but you feel like, you know, there's a driving force that starts with Wilbur Tennant and his farm in, in yeah. Parkersburg. And, uh, and ultimately, Wilbur Tennant's wishes are, are come true. Yeah. the desire for the truth to get out because right. these companies are in a position to pay out and settle and right. shut up the information yeah. and stop the information. And to run the clock out. out. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And they failed at that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wonder how many people in this audience can actually claim to be from any part of the country that has not been affected by <laughs> um, some kind of problem like this. I'm from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. It was GE's flagship operation. They polluted the waters and then they refused to remove the PCPs until they were forced to. Um, but, uh, why don't we do some questions from the audience? Religion was a thread that was woven through the film. Was that basically used as a metaphor, the fact that our hero likely didn't believe in God? Hmm. It is. A metaphor? That's, can you raise your hand? Voice of God right here. Yeah. Yeah. Voice of God. Voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting, I think, about it is, is um, you know, all the world around him is, is, is material. You know, he, he, everyone around him is getting the money. They're getting a career. They're getting the bigger house. Everything around him tells him that he should be doing something else. Um, and this character goes on a totally different journey, which is one of, I think, an ultimately kind of a spiritual journey, although it's not, it's not explicitly a, a spiritual journey, but it's the opposite of materialism, and it's a journey that's laden with sacrifice. And, and he literally leaves the world to go down into the depths uh, and along that is despair, and ultimately it's it's a it's a path of righteousness. Um, anywhere along the way, he could have just cashed in and gotten out, but he kept going with the belief that justice would someday be served, and ultimately that that the decency of his fellow man would actually awaken inside of his adversaries and have them do the right thing. 
And so that scene when he's deposing Holiday, I keep going back to this. I wanted to tear into Holiday's ass in that scene. <laughs> and I said to Rob, that's what you're doing, right? He said, no, actually. I felt that if I laid it out to him, if I showed him the truth, that he would get it and he would do the right thing. And that was his ethos during the entire process. And he's a lot better guy than I am <laughs> for that. And so we are in, we are in churches at times, and, and that's a big part of these people's lives. And, and I think he would want to believe in that. But he can't, he can't wrap himself in, in that. To him, it's a, a, a cold comfort. It's a hollow comfort to him. Even though he is really on the journey of, of some Moral and ethical journey. Yeah. yeah. But it's also the thing that both links the community, links his wife's you know, social standing and culture and family life. Wilbur's, Wilbur's uh, social life, but that both Wilbur and Rob are curiously excluded from. And, and Wilbur was kicked out of four churches through the course of this story, which has a huge bearing on the culture of rural Parkersburg, West Virginia. Um, he actually did end up going to the same church. One of the churches that he did go to or, or his brother, Jim Tennant, was the church that Darlene and Joe Kiger went to, which is what we show in the movie. What kinds of churches were those, the, the, the denomination? They were Baptist churches, mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, and hers was a Catholic church. Yeah, Catholic Sarah's church. family, yeah, was, clearly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but you sort of, there's this, I find something so sort of heartbreaking toward the end where R Rob really sort of surrenders in a state of the really the, the most tested uh, period of his entire story is the is the long wait during the medical monitoring period that lasts seven years, mm. and during which the recession happens and Taft starts to merge with other companies and expand and people start to leave and go to different branches of the law firm in other states and there's sort of this evacuation and no one will speak to him and nobody will make eye contact with him in this in this culture. And he, he doesn't even understand why Tom Turp is sticking it out. You know, like everyone is just becomes more and more tested and isolated and separated from each other during this period. And then when you get the news at the end and the science panel has literally, because he has been able to enlist 70,000 class members in that medical monitoring process, he could have just walked away and with the settlement money. Instead, he reinvested the money into um, you know, persuading the class to take part in this test. They had to fill out three inch thick uh, medical histories, all of those people who, who participated, 70,000 people. And so they ultimately could establish links between six illnesses and this chemical. And at the very end, you're waiting for this news but it's ultimately the saddest good news in the world. And, it, and it, so the victory is an incredibly heartbreaking one for the state of the world. But it's, all we, it's what we have to take and move forward with. 
Let's one more. Yep. DuPont still makes Teflon. Were they required under the disposition of the matter to make Teflon differently, to dispose of waste in specific regulated ways? Do you know? Uh, this chemical class and that chemical is completely unregulated here. Um, they decided to change the chemical compound to slip legislation and to slip the uh, lawsuits, and then they um, began to liquidate their assets and move them into another company called uh, Camores and created uh, another uh, uh, perfluorocarbonate um, chemical called uh, C6 which was six uh, carbon um, uh, molecules instead of eight. Um, but yes, it's still around. They're still making it, and it is not regulated. Thank you. That's a question about the community in, in West Virginia and how they were affected and where things stand now. Well, um, so they did a poll in Parkersburg, and they basically said, uh, the majority said, yes, we're, this is giving us cancer, but we don't care because we have a job. And that's where we are in America today. Um, that's a lot of different communities who are dealing with toxic industries. Uh, we're that desperate, and that's the option that people are given. You can have, you can have a job, but it might give you cancer, uh, or you cannot have a job and starve to death, but there's nothing in between, and there's nothing much better for you than that. I mean, so. it's, the, it's the ultimate definition of a company town that employs, I mean, the, the size of Washington Works, which continues to thrive, is 35 times the size of the Pentagon in right outside the, the border of, of Ohio State. And in, in West Virginia. But this is the main employer of this community. And so everyone knows somebody who works for or has worked for DuPont, and DuPont is paying your health care as they're poisoning you. But if you think about it, this is an interesting thing. Is So on this side, the regulators are letting this go by. We're getting, we get this in our blood. We get sick. Then we have got to pay the healthcare to get ourselves better, and we're in this vicious, <laughs> this vicious circle where it's corporate socialism on this side and absolute like do it on your own capitalism on this end, and we're the ones who are paying the price. And if the state had any stake in our healthcare, I promise you the water and the air and the food would get cleaned up real fast. But this is this is the sickness of of the of the system, and this is part of it. It's it's a you know the EPA was captured, the the local government was captured, and so this is the this is the end result of of that. And that describes systemic problems, cultural and social and political and governmental problems in a nutshell. But it also suggests that when you start to make significant change in one area, it's going to affect other areas of the system. So we have to start taking a stand and making these positive changes in our, in our government and voting and making 
things really uh, shift. Mm -hmm. And then they really will have a, a systemic impact on everything else that supports it. Um, what's the release date? The 22nd. Okay. Very soon. Yep, there we go. So um, thanks, you guys, for coming. Thanks for having us. You can't. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to the Film at Lincoln Center podcast. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Film at Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City and supported by individuals just like you. For 50 years, we've been dedicated to supporting the art and elevating the craft of cinema and enriching film culture through the programming of festivals, series, retrospectives, and new releases. The publication of Film Comment, the presentation of podcasts, talks, and special events, the creation and implementation of artist initiatives, and our film and education, curriculum, and screenings. To learn more about what we do and support Film at Lincoln Center by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org. That's F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org.